Sunday morning, February 16th. This is our class uh, called The Reign of Life. We're going to be studying Romans 5 to 8, and we're spending some time doing a little background, looking at the life of Paul, based on his epistles in the book of Acts. For what reason? Why, why am I in, indulging you in all this extra time? Rarely do we get in the Bible such an in-depth look at the life of a man who's, or a woman who's been transformed by the gospel. I, I, don't, I can't think of another, maybe the gospel writers, John, but I can't think of somebody that we, we get so much detail about how the grace of Jesus has changed him. And that helps us to know what to expect, to know what to pray for, to uh, rejoice in the way God changes people. I'm not saying Paul's the only paradigm. And so as we go through the material today on the handout, be thinking about the person Paul, what's the same from Saul, unregenerate Saul, what seems to be the same about him, what seems to have been modified in terms of personality, gifting, passion, the, the person, his interests, and what's very different. And so this is simply setting the table that when we sit down to Romans 5-8, we have the greatest amount of enjoyment knowing the author who's giving us that biblical material. Ultimately, the author is the Holy Spirit, but the Holy, we believe that the Word of God is a confluent. It's a product of two things. The Spirit of God and the personality of the author who's writing it. This is why the New Testament epistles appear in different kinds of Greek, meaning variations of uh, simple, very Greek. John the fisherman, his Greek's pretty simple. The writer of Hebrews was an intellect. His Greek's very difficult. If you have a seminary exam, you don't want to get Hebrews, Greek, because it's very hard to translate. Peter's kind of middle of the road. Paul's fairly middle of the road. Anyway, we believe that the Word of God, like Jesus, fully God, fully man, the Scriptures are the same. Fully God as the, the author, and uh, fully human in how they come to us. Okay? So, I just want you to be thinking about, as we go through what we're looking at, Paul, um, you can see there on the, let's see on your outline, getting to chapter 5, we framed it this way, Romans 5, 1, therefore having been justified by faith, we have peace with God, through our Lord Jesus Christ, what kind of person has given us this wonderful truth? We said that is a... A transition verse, a summary from chapters 1 through 4. We'll look more about that as we move along. So, we are down now, thanks to the careful note-taking of Dory, Kenyon, your ruling elder. We are down now to looking at Paul's life goal from Philippians 3.10. Who has that for us? Has anybody showed up ready to read, as it were? Some people have the hymn open to the hymn during the call to worship, right? That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Thank you, Frank. So there's a lot there. I just want to point out the last phrase, as it were, Paul's ultimate goal in life is to be raised from the dead. He wants to be raised from the dead. Do we think about that? How does that frame what you're going to do tomorrow? We will be raised from the dead, first stage, Entering into the presence of Jesus, <coughs> my, my devotions this morning uh, were Psalm, uh, in part, not just Proverbs, but from Psalms, start with Psalms 16, 
Dennis and I are on the same reading plan in that regard. Psalm 16 ends, In your presence there is fullness of joy, our right hand, eternal pleasures. That's our destiny. How does that frame what we're doing in this life day in and day out? Just a question. Okay, thank you. Any, any thoughts about that before we move on to his motives? How often do we think about our, we want to be raised from the dead? What's the assurance that you will be raised from the dead on that great day? Your assurance that that will happen is? That he was raised. He was raised from the dead. What's true of Jesus is equally and correspondingly true of all those who are united to him by faith. We will be raised from the dead. So Paul's got great vision about his life. How about his motives? 1 Corinthians 10, <clears throat> 31. Who's got that? So Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Thank you, Joan Kathy. So somebody reflect for us. What's that about? Do it to the glory of God. What does that mean? How have you thought about that in your life? Nate? So that's, to me, what this is saying is whatever you do, make it a spiritual sacrifice to the Lord. So there's another a verse that talks about the worship being offering spiritual sacrifices. Wonderful. 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 Good. What and what 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 core reality is at the heart of that? Joan Kathy? Well, I just was going to add to that. When I when I have looked at this, I felt I always feel like it's doing my best because if I'm professing that I believe in God and that I'm serving God and Jesus, if I'm not doing the best, what are my my actions are not consistent with my words. Okay. So whatever it is, just try to do the best. Okay. Remember that line in uh, *Chariots of Fire*? It's, you know, it's a preacher's favorite movie, is it? Because you get so many <laughs> illustrations of it. It's actually hard to hear. Eric and and uh, I think his pastor and his brother or somebody are discussing whether or not he should run, and they're in the dining room, and one the line is, "You can praise the Lord by peeling a spud if you do it to perfection." Remember that line in that movie? Um, so, why? What, what, what's the point of doing it well, doing it to perfection? What's the point of that? How is God glorified in that? When we do what we're created to do, we're bringing glory to God because it's, it's Him who is doing it through us. Good. He gets the glory because we could never do this in and apart from him giving us the desire, him giving us the power, him giving us the ability. And what happens is we are reflecting not only to those around us, but most importantly, we are reflecting back to God something of the perfection of his character. The ultimate thing God is looking for on this planet is to see a mirror of himself in holiness and righteousness. We want to reflect back to God for his pleasure, 
for the manifestation of his glory, something of his glory. So we're made in the image of God, Frank is pointing out. Made in the image of God. We had that, capa that capacity in the garden. It was forfeited. Now we're all turning on ourselves. Now that we're regenerate and have a new heart, we have power through the Spirit to live in such a way as we reflect back to God something of the glory of who he is in which he takes immense satisfaction because that's ultimately what he wants. His own glory. And that actually ends up being, as a norm, the thing that gives our hearts the greatest satisfaction. We see snippets of that in serving others, how blessed it is to serve others, and there's, there's a taste of that. But would that we become addicted to wanting to bring glory to God, to reflect back to God the use of our words, our hands, our thoughts, our motives, everything. And of course, it's the word of God that pierces through to our motives that exposes them, Hebrews 4.12. It's sharper than any two-edged sword act as piercing as far as joints and marrow. And it judges the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And that's why we need daily time, regular time, throughout the whole counsel of God, asking God to show us himself, to show us ourselves, to expose to us our hearts, etc. Okay, mini-sermon, wasn't planning on giving, but good stuff. So what's, so just one more on this, what's supposed to happen in the next hour vis-a-vis -vis all this? What is your expectation from 10.30 to noon vis-a-vis -vis this? There's a lot of different answers to this question. What's your expectation? It's an opportunity to reflect back to God. Yes. You know, how worthy he is. We're declaring his worth. So we would want unbelievers coming into this assembly, right, by the droves, sensing something they couldn't understand or explain, and that would be people, like themselves, as it were, giving God glory. Uh, one of my mentors, Edmund Clowney, who was president of Westminster Seminary for years, calls it doxological evangelism doing evangelism by declaring who God is. And, th and this is, uh, at the session meeting the other night, Nate, in a, a certain context in our discussion, quoted for us leaders, elders and deacons, from 1 Peter 2, is it uh, 11 and 12? Yes, 9 and 10. Yeah, yeah. We, we, basically, he's called us out of darkness that we might declare the excellencies of him, to declare his excellencies. So we do that every day in the way we live. We do that every day in our personal devotions. And we'll do that together in this next hour. Anything else, Nate? We have another opportunity of being able to do it together <coughs> in the next hour. So normally we're doing this by ourselves or with your spouse. And you're trying to glorify God in all that you're doing, giving him the glory. But we, it's a wonderful thing to be able to do it with other people who have the same goals, the same uh, mind. It helps us remember that we're not individuals out doing this on our own. Good. We've been called. Sometimes we, you know, somebody uses the phrase scatter together. So we all scatter, but the whole, we're designed to be together, and eventually we will be all together. But um, Good. it's kind of a glimpse of that. Good. It is. It is a glimpse of that ultimate time of you know, being before Jesus and worshiping him. One of the paradigms I sort of work with as a, as a, as a pastor is, as Nate said, you, you hope that, you, that those in your flock are spending time with Jesus, worshiping him. 
And so throughout these six days of the week, a worship collateral is building in your heart. And so you come here Sunday morning at 10.30, and then it, as a group, it all comes out. Because it's really hard just to worship and sing for one day a week. That's kind of hard to do. So you're building this worship collateral throughout your life, throughout the week, and then we all come together and we... And I say, when everyone's doing that, you'll know it. You will know it. Bring that to pass, Lord. His ministerial style. We have at least two wonderful up close. Let's go to Acts 20. It's the longest passage, but it's just packed with solid gold. How did Paul do ministry? What do we learn from that? Not just elders and deacons, but, but the rest of us. This is his time, his last time with the elders, the, the spiritual shepherds of the church in Ephesus. He's made a point to call them to himself for one final last word of exhortation after it ends. They're weeping and crying that they're never going to see Paul again. We looked at this in the, the series on death. It's okay. To weep the passing, right? It's okay to weep about someone dying, even though we're, in a, we're going to be with them in eternity. So here's how Paul reminds them of how he did ministry among them. Acts 20, who wants to begin reading first for, uh, for us at 18 and just go on down through 35. I might push the gong on you and if we need to stop and make some observations. But. Jim, thank you. And when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time, from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the thoughts of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, restrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonments and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life in any value for as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus, and testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone out about complaining about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend to you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I covet no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities, to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, 
It is more blessed to give than to receive. Thank you. Wonderful. What do you notice about this ministry? Observations. What stood out at you? He did not require. What's that? He didn't receive, require, or demands payment. Did he have the right to? Yes, because labor is worthy of his wages. We're going to get to this maybe even this morning. Why did he not ask for payment for his ministry there? Well, we'll get the answer to that from 1 Corinthians. So he, what's his profession? He is a very portable occupation. Anywhere you go, you're going to need this. Whatever cities he's in, it's not going to be hard to go down the block, knock on the door and get a job as a tent maker. Okay? He wants his ministry to be all about what? Christ, the gospel, there's like six synonyms for the content of this message in this alone. The kingdom, grace, faith and repentance, the grace of Jesus. So, so the gospel is a very fluid concept, as it were. There's a lot of different ways of looking at the same thing. God rescuing sinners from themselves for his glory that he might give a people to his son Jesus by the work of Jesus' sacrificial cross. There's a lot of different ways Paul talks about that, the content of his message. What else do we see about his ministerial style? He's very pastoral. He loves them. He's like a father. He weeps for them. He wants to protect them from the wolves. Good. Pastoral style. He's a shepherd. Uh, Catherine points out at least two times he refers to his own tears. Ministry's hard. One of the contexts is, I've admonished you day after day with tears. Why is he crying as he admonishes them? He sees the brokenness that sin has brought in people's lives and in the world. Yeah, he's seeing their brokenness. He's weeping over that. This is not the way it's supposed to be. Sin shouldn't be in this world. I don't sense a lot of judgment in his heart, but empathy. His heart is breaking for them. He's crying. They don't teach you that in seminary. How to cry with your sheep. <laughs> Good. Great observation. What else? And as, one more thing, as the good shepherd, he's warning them about, this might not be what you were going to say, he's warning them about the wolves. What's his best ammunition against the wolves? The truth. The truth. Go ahead, Dory. Yeah, and also, he was not... Uh, pulling back on holding himself up as an example for others to follow. I mean, he was saying, this is how I live, and you just live like this. Good. Um, that, and that is reflected in the ordination vows. I know for a pastor, and they're almost the same for elders and deacons, that you basically are vowing that you will live a life that is commensurate with the gospel. It's a very sobering thing. Very sobering thing. And that comes out of these kinds of texts. Good. And we'll see later on uh, how Paul holds himself up as an example worthy of invitation. Any other observations about this rich, rich text? What two spheres did this ministry take place in? This teaching ministry took place both... Jews and Greeks. Well, to Jews and Greeks. Corporate house to house. Yeah, house to house and publicly. He's constantly... Ministering the word of God, the word of grace. Okay, any other observations? Very purposeful about telling that he's compelled by the Holy Spirit and not by his own location. Good, the Holy Spirit's driving me to Jerusalem. 
And this is, this is a humanly fearful thing. And what, look closely at the text, what is the reason he has the kind of courage and resilience that he does? What's he say in that context? I do not consider... I don't... Go ahead, Lisa. Go ahead. Yeah, I'm looking for it now. But yeah. Because his own life is the most important thing. Yeah. But I do not account my life with any value so who does he belong to Frank to the Lord he belongs to the Lord the Holy Spirit confirming I belong to Jesus therefore I can live with self abandonment for the gospel that's that's really something to think about because when I wake up in the morning my natural thinking is what who do I belong to me and I'll start a course of self-preservation and self-promotion and self-defense if the Holy Spirit doesn't come in and change that. And that's true of you too. Lori? But also, I this would ask me in verse 32, and now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up in time. So again, a confidence in God working in his people Good. founded on that, that, the, the word. You know, so he, he, he is, he's leaving, but he has this confidence that he said elsewhere, he began a good work and he was able to complete it. So he's not leaving them without that confidence that God's able to keep them and build them up. Good, good. Confident, God's going to do this by the word of his grace. Good, excellent. Well, we could, Nate. Uh, there's an interesting verse in there, verse 26, where he says, I testify you to this day that innocent of the blood of for what reason? Is he innocent of it? Well, because he is compelled to share the gospel with people that need to hear it. And so, um, if there are people that need to hear it, and he doesn't proclaim it to them, he's going to be responsible for that. And there are other passages in the scripture that talk about um, your, your, your blood is going to be on your hands, he feels like you're a watchman, so he recognizes part of the responsibility of my ministry is sharing this in the opportunities that I have. You don't want someone to Go to judgment not knowing this message is proclaimed. Yep. And it says it in the next verse, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Good. Very good. Thank you. So a responsibility to live in such a way around others who do not know the Lord that we're praying for and seeking but it gives you some insight into Paul's ministerial style, as does 1 Thessalonians 2, 1-12. Catherine had mentioned his fatherly care for the flock. We see that come up again. Um, I, I don't know. How long ago did I preach on 1 Thessalonians? I can't keep track. But So we did look at this passage in our study of that epistle, but this is just want to call it to your attention again. Because it gives you such close insight as he recalls the way he did ministry. Who's who wants to read that for us? First Thessalonians 2, 1 to 12. The female is the time for female. Janice. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, 
not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Thank you. Again, we're looking for insights into Paul's heart, his motives, his vision for the way ministry should be conducted, observations. What stands out to you? Gentle, affectionately desirous. You're very dear to us. So he loved these people. He didn't minister there very long. This love springs up like asparagus. Isn't asparagus a very quick growing? Doesn't it spring up quickly and you've got to harvest it quickly? Anyway, doesn't matter. He has great love for them, they for him. What is he's got gentleness? Is that a very masculine quality in our culture? Gentleness? Motherly gentleness? The gospel produces that. Yet fatherly discipline. It's both. Depending on what? On the circumstances, the situation, the need. Some people need gentle motherliness. Other people need fatherly discipline. He gets it that later in chapter 5. Admonish the unruly. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. Be patient with all men. Anyway, get ahead of myself. What other observations about ministerial style? It's the duplication from the acts. We work night and day. It seems like the, the, the timing was continual, depending on the need. Yeah. He's a busy guy because he comes into Thessalonica. What's the first place he finds after the synagogue? First place he finds? Tent maker's shop. Hey, would you hire me for a few weeks? Sure, we always have need for tent makers. Come on, sit down. Probably 9 to 5, he's working on tents. Evenings, come hear about Jesus. He's gathering a church. He's planting a church. He's a hard worker. He's a hard worker. What else do you notice? wants to be a visible, visible demonstration of how Jesus changes people. And he's pretty blameless. I mean, I wish I could say in my two years at Wallace, I've been blameless among you. I, if you looked hard enough, you'd find some faults. You'd find some things to criticize. You don't even look hard. <laughs> but he, he's got a clear conscience because he wants to reflect the glory of God in the way he lives. He's conscious about that. Anything else before we move on? 
Isn't this a wonderful passage? These are one of these that takes my breath away passages. Maybe because I'm a pastor. And, but anyway, you get great insight into what's important to Paul. What's he leave behind? All right, speaking of Thessalonica, let's look at his methodology because Acts 17, 1 through 3, is a perfect example of his methodology ministerially. So somebody read for us 17, 1 to 3. Anybody got it? Acts 17, 1 to 3? You just read, sweetheart. Okay. Now when they had passed through in Biloas and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on the three Sabbaths he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. Thank you, Frank. Why is he in Thessalonica? To do what? To reason from the scriptures. Well, even more fundamentally. To proclaim Christ. He wants to plant a church. He's a church planter. This city needs a church. Now, he passed through two cities to get there. What's that tell you? We're speculating. It may mean when it says where there was a synagogue, that in those other two cities there was not a synagogue. So what does, that, what does that tell you about his methodology when he goes to a city to plant a church? First place he goes? To the synagogue. To the synagogue because, is that Irfan, were you saying something? Why is he there? Jews. Which means he's looking for <coughs> common ground. He's looking for common ground. Who's the most receptive audience? And what's he preaching out of, you guys? What's he preaching out of? The Old Testament. The Old Testament. Who's the most receptive audience in that city to the Old Testament? The Jews. So he goes to the synagogue. And you know what happens in most of these cities. What happens, basically? A small percentage believe. The rest knock the snot out of them. That's what happens. We'll see as we move through the, through the handout. That's who he suffers. Most of his persecution is at the hands, not of the Gentiles, not of the Romans, but his fellow countrymen. And we'll see about his attitude towards that. He's a church planter. They need a church. He's fulfilling the Great Commission, making disciples. How do you make disciples? You find people that aren't disciples and you make them one, they become disciples. And actually this church takes the gospel and spreads it to the whole region. So he's like, you put me out of business. This is chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians. You put me out of business as an evangelist because you're just the word of the Lord standing forth from you. This is, man, that's a healthy church. Oh, of Thessalonians. For one thing, he tells them in chapter 4, I have no need to tell you to love one another because you're doing it well. And secondly, they're not just loving each other, they're loving lost people because they're just sharing the gospel. Okay, that's why I preach on it. I digress a little bit. What else can you tell us from these verses about his methodology? What does he want to communicate? The work of Christ, and that work of Christ is rooted in their scriptures. Translated, I'm not telling you anything new. 
Uh, I remember last week before was it Agrippa stating nothing but the prophets and the psalm said this was going to take place. So this is everywhere he goes he's preaching from the Old Testament. So the Old Testament is all about Jesus. The center of the Old Testament revelation is Jesus Christ. What's the center of the center? It's right in the text. His sufferings and glory. The Old Testament is ultimately about Jesus. And this is Luke 24, Jesus on the road to Emmaus. It's said again in verse 44 of Luke 24 when he's with the disciples. He explained to them everything concerning himself and all the scriptures. The Old Testament is about Jesus. The center of the Old Testament and the center of the center is his sufferings and glory. This is his message. And this is what God uses to convert people. Dorian. Well, I think there's two things there. One, that there is a Christ in the Old Testament, and that this Jesus is the one who fulfills that, and is that expected Christ. Good. This is the one. I'm telling you about Jesus of Nazareth. So he's got to give evidence from the life, teaching, ministry, death, resurrection of Jesus, that that's indeed the Christ. Good. Good point. Good to make that clarification. Anything else? Nate? I think that's a key distinction between ministry to Jews and Gentiles. So the Jews were looking for a savior. They were looking for the Messiah coming. With the Jews, you can say, hey, he's here. Here's who he is. Yes. With the, with the Gentiles, you have to kind of start from scratch and go back to talking about God as the creator and do that yes. whole context. So I think that's one of the reasons why it goes to the synagogue is because people are looking for something and you say, I have it, as opposed to people that are, yeah, you have to provide more product. Good. So, Paul, um, Paul, Nate is using a very important word. We can't get into it now, but the gospel is contextualized. Paul does that. He preaches, I'm going to reference Lystra. He's preaching on Lystra in my sermon a little bit later this morning. He, he comes at it in a different way. He starts from creation. God satisfies you with rings and food and good things. That's where he starts there. With the Jews, hey, you got the book. Let's open it. I'll show you. Talks about the Christ. Well, this Jesus is that person. Good point. Very good. Contextualize the gospel. All right, great passage. Um, any more to say about that? I think you covered it. How about his sufferings? Let's go to 2 Corinthians 11. <clears throat> As you're turning there, let me just give you the reason this appears in 2 Corinthians. He was extremely frustrated with a group of people he facetiously calls super apostles. He's being facetious with that. Because in the Corinthian church, there were people that said, where are your real pastors, not this bald, fat guy who has a speech impediment? We look great. We have ourselves together. Look at us. Polished. I mean, these, these are the... Sorry. They're the TV evangelists. Everything. <laughs> Send us your money. There was this, that was going on there. And uh, he says, I'll talk about qualifications for ministry. Want to know my qualifications for ministry? Here they are. 2 Corinthians 11. Who would read beginning at 22 for us? Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am out of my mind to talk like this, but I am more. I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. 
Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I had been constantly on the move. I had been in danger from rivers, in dangers of bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and given, and I have given, often given and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak? And I am not. And I do not feel weak. Who is led into sin? And I do not inwardly burn. And verse 30. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. Thank you. What do you want to say to that? As we catch our breath. Yeah. Well, this is, this, this is what qualifies me to be an apostle. Well, who, who went before Paul in all of this, as it were? Jesus. His sufferings. And Paul would be the first to say, what I've suffered doesn't compare to what Jesus suffered. But he'd probably say, it was all worth it. Because what's constraining Paul, we've seen so far, what's constraining him, what's moving him, he's a man gripped by the necessity of proclaiming the gospel. Wherever it takes him, he'll do it. Until, until it takes him to his death. Any thoughts or comments about this? Yes, Joe Kathy? Making reference to um, what you asked us in the beginning. Yeah. Um, I see that same zeal that he had as Saul continuing True. as Paul. Yep. And he's not, you know, um, bashful <laughs> at, at all. He was a zealous guy as a Pharisee. Yeah. And he's a zealous guy as a Christian. All right. Good, good, great observation. What is different is, is? he was persecuting those of Christ and now he's professing. He's being persecuted right. for that same message he tried to destroy. <clears throat> Nate? Again, I want to look at these in context because there's another place where this is talked about as a light and momentary affliction. Okay. All these things that we just read in comparison to the eternal weight of glory that's coming. So we look at this and we say, yikes. He looks at this and he says, that's not something that will come. Okay. Good. Thank you. Excellent. Yes? Something that I noticed is just how consistent you know, uh, Paul is. You know, like it's his story, everything he says. Um, he looked before the Philippians 1 and said, like, it's me who lives from his heart and his heart. It's like the message is consistent. You know, verse it is. And I think that, like, that's the gospel. Like, it's just, you know, like, he, as you know, he's consistent like that. Um, so it just shows again that, like, the power that's Good. Thank you. Consistent. Power driving him as Christ. Let's go on to his apostolic qualifications. 2 Corinthians 12, 11 to 13. Incidentally, through this whole section, there's a sense in which he's, he, 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 he's compelled to confront the super apostles because they're just bad. But he has this discomfort doing so. Even talking about the experience of being caught up in the glory, he, he, he turns it into a third-person narrative. I know a man in Christ who, you know, 
he feels this inerrant discomfort defending himself. It, it goes against the grain of the gospel. He hates that he has to do it, but he has to do it nonetheless. Okay. So who was going to read this for us? This section. Paul, thank you. I have become a fool. You forced me. You forced it on me. I should have been endorsed by you, since I am not, not in any way inferior to the super apostle. Even though I am nothing, the signs of an apostle were performed with great endurance among you. Not only signs, but also wonders and miracles. So in what way were you treated worse than the other churches? Except that I personally did not burden you. Forgive me, it's wrong. There's facetious Paul. Thank you. He was probably facetious as a Pharisee, right? A little little sarcasm there. I don't think sarcasm came with the sanctification. He's probably a sarcastic guy. It fits. This is of the Holy Spirit. Forgive me for wronging you that I didn't burden you. <laughs> okay, so so he's filled with the Holy Spirit. He's performing the signs of an apostle. He's a pretty important guy, yet he considers himself, according to this text, what? Nothing. Nothing. That's a comparative term, isn't it? Yeah. (laughs) Nothing is a comparative term. On the one hand, we're going to see from 1 Corinthians 15, he outpaced all the other apostles. And in that same text, he called himself least of the apostles. Here he calls himself nothing, and that he's a man to whom God is bringing the gospel to the Mediterranean basis. Yeah. So in what respect is he nothing? In what respect? Well, his, in his humility, he recognizes that he's a vessel of the Lord, although the Lord has used who he is, who he was, Good. and who he's becoming. Good. He still sees himself in his proper position uh, before the Lord. Good. Good. Servant of the Lord. I'm nothing compared to or with. To the Lord. Yeah. So I have a mantra I say all the time to Jesus, particularly Sunday morning, when he's given me the most precious thing on earth to do, which is to share and preach the word of God. I can't think of anything more important. Not to create a distinction between secular and sacred, but um, uh, I'm nothing. You're everything. I can't. You can. I will. I won't. You will. I just, I'm nothing. I'm nothing. I love saying that to the Lord because it's true. I'm nothing, and therefore grace better show up, or, or it's going to be bad. So I love. I thank the Lord for a praying wife. Janice prays for me. You pray for me. There are times I feel those prayers more acutely than others. Sometimes I just wake up and I go, I don't know why I'm sensing this, but I'm doing better than I deserve, and it must be the prayers of God's people. So thank you for praying for us. Prayer really makes a difference. Okay, how about um, his vision? We can, I think we can end with Romans 15, 18 to 21. Romans 15, 18 to 21. For I will not presume to speak of anything except what has been accomplished through me, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed, and the power of signs and wonders, and the power of the Spirit, so that from Jerusalem and round as far as Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ, and thus I aspire to preach the gospel 
Thanks, Nate. So he wants to go to unreached people. And that's not everybody. Um, I was privileged to go to Calcutta, India in 2005-ish, and a sweet, dear Christian man there named Supert Roy, this was his life verse. He wants to preach the gospel where it's never been preached. And we went out on this boat and into some tributaries of the Ganges River. And, um, and as far as I know, we preached the gospel on some of those days that had never been preached before. And I would count that one of the most precious things in my life. That's what he said. You preached the gospel, as far as he knew, never been preached before. So that, but anyway, that was Sucred Roy's life verse. That means it has to be yours. But what is it that constrains and compels him, that owns him? He's owned by Jesus and his gospel. Love is allusion to the power of the Holy Spirit. Let me pray for us to have the same. Jesus, you've risen from the dead. You ascended on high and poured out the promise of your Father, the Holy Spirit, upon your church, that by him you would be making visible in a dark world the glory of your invisible reign. You reign, Lord Jesus, King of kings, Lord of lords, the gracious one. You're on your throne. You're building your church. You're conquering the nations for yourself. You're spreading the light, the gospel, throughout the world. You're using us. Thank you. We need the power of the Holy Spirit. The same power that filled Paul, the same power that raised you from the dead, is ours in the Holy Spirit. Fill us with that power. Constrain it. May it create in us deeper love for Jesus, zeal for the lost, understanding of the gospel, passion to share it. Uh, first with ourselves, then in our families and homes, friends, roommates, neighbors, uh, that you, Lord Jesus, would get the glory of every tongue, every knee that they on this earth they would bow before you and proclaim who you are, Lord of Lords, King of Kings, to the glory of God the Father. Send us your spirit now as we worship. May he be very present as we declare the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Let us taste and see together how good you are. For Jesus' sake, amen. <coughs> <coughs>